Welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you. Adam McManus from theworldview.com with me as well. And we want to do a program on the generational trajectory of the Gen Zers, the Millennials, the Baby Boomers. Where are we headed? And indeed, we have this generational trajectory that betrays itself in terms of economics, in terms of social structures, in terms of church attendance. The balance in the Social Security Trust Fund went into the red by 1.2% over the last fiscal year. I don't know if that made it to the news, but I think we need to talk about it. The balance dropped 2% in the prior year, and then in 2018, it balanced, it dropped another 1%. So what is that? That's uh, It's off uh, 4 or 5%. And uh, you get, you're dealing with 80 million baby boomers retiring right now, so this is not a good time for the Social Security Fund to be imploding. In the fiscal year, the fund earned $65 billion in interest on its treasury security holdings. Sadly, it lends money to the U.S. federal government. That's not <laughs> going to be a ripoff. You know, you're not going to get enough interest to beat inflation with that. So interest not keeping up with inflation due to the massive government spending and stimmy checks, quantitative easing and such. And now we see the Social Security Fund just imploding, incapable of keeping up with inflation, incapable of keeping up with the added burden that comes from retiring baby boomers. Not a good time for Social Security. Social Security is not able to meet its obligations by 2032, 2033 timeframe. 80 million baby boomers are retiring and will until the year 2030. They started retiring in the year 2011 and will continue to retire until 2030. I was born in 1964. I'm the very hind end of the baby boom generation. And technically, I'm supposed to retire in the year 2030. But uh, as you know, Adam, I just want to die with my boots on. So it's not as if I'm looking forward to the big check or anything like that. Okay. <laughs> so we've got this issue. It was a Ponzi scheme to begin with. The assumption was that you would continue to get more and more people paying into it to provide for. Those who paid into it over the previous generation or two. Well, 80 million baby boomers retiring over this period of 18 years. The worker to retiree ratio, though, will be one third of what it was 50 years ago, 10 years from now. So, what's going to happen to the Social Security program? Less workers, more retirees. What does that sound like to you, Adam? Sounds like disaster. It's a big oops. Everybody say it's a big oops. It's a big oops. We followed up. The Social Security Fund with the abortion and birth control movements of the 1960s and 1970s, and now we're dealing with birth implosions. Who would have thought? 80 million baby boomers killed 80 million babies, roughly. Mm. Big oops. Wow. Shouldn't have done that. Well, the Gen Zers are 10 to 25 years old, and many of them, you know, of course, are just getting into the workforce and able to pay into Social Security. Yeah, you really think they've got the character to salvage Western civilization. Hmm. They're, they're still living in their parents' homes. And we're we're going to get that story in just a moment. But, you know, I just don't think the Gen Zers are going to pull it off. That's all. Because of the way they've been raised or what specifically? Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think they're going to have the character to pull it off. You're looking at a society that used up all the character of the last 200 years spent all of the capital and now they're spending their great-grandchildren into debt and on top of that they destroyed their progeny 
killing 80 million baby boomers, killing off the siblings, allowing some to live, but then, you know, not really producing the character necessary for this thing to survive. These Gen Zers not really raised in optimum homes with a solid work ethic, with a commitment to care for those who can't take care of themselves. That, that really didn't quite happen, especially when you've got 80 million baby boomers killing 80 million siblings, not really conveying the vision, you know, very well of caring for those who can't take care of themselves. So what you're looking at is euthanasia by the millions. 57% of kids born to millennials under 30 years of age are born out of wedlock. We're coming up to a generation that uh, were not raised by two parents. It's a divorced generation. It's the porn generation, the irresponsible male generation that won't get married or won't take care of the children they conceived. That's this generation. That's the Gen Z generation. But the good news is the Gen Zers and millennials are really good with Facebook and Twitter updates. Oh, yeah. They're, they're keeping the world updated with the stupid things they do. And the meals they eat. Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's important. And as it turns, it turns out, economically, the Gen Zers are doing terrible. The millennials are doing terrible. The baby boomers are valued at $15 trillion of real estate. That's $150,000 per Gen Xer. I'm sorry, for, per millennial. The Gen Xers are at $7 trillion net worth real estate-wise at $108,000 per Gen Xer, but the millennials are at a measly $1.1 trillion of real estate wealth, uh, $15,000 per millennial. So it's the difference between $15,000 per millennial to $150,000 of average real estate wealth for the baby boom generation. That's a tenfold increase. Boomers are 10 times richer than millennials. Friends, the future holds a lot of uncertainties. We're in crisis. We're in epistemological crisis, a teleological crisis, economic crisis, a geopolitical crisis, a character crisis, a faith crisis, a culture crisis, an educational crisis. I think these things are coming to a head in this generation. That's what's happening right now. 100 years ago, 2.8% of the nation's GDP went to church tithes and offerings. That number is now at 0.6%. That means wow. the Christian church has one-fifth the influence it had on the nation a hundred years ago, just on the percentage of, of tithing as a percentage of the GDP. So you're looking at a breakdown of the Christian faith. You're looking at a breakdown of character. You're looking at a breakdown of social systems. The character of this generation not doing well. Half of children conceived are either killed by abortifacients, day after pills, surgical abortions, or the chemical RU-46. And half of those who make it are born without fathers. This has produced a broken society, and as I, I see it, there's nothing that could salvage this but the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. The lapse in the character of the Western nations is unsalvageable in the short term, socially, economically, geopolitically, culturally, medically, educationally, the nation is stretched to the breaking point. Be back with more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast. You know, busyness has a way of creeping into our lives. As dads, it can leave us longing for moments of one-on-one -on -one time with our sons to simply talk. And those moments can be tough to come by. I get it. 
That's one of our top goals for our annual summer father-son retreat in the Colorado mountains, to provide quality time for you to connect with your son. Can you think of anything more important for your schedule next year? If you are looking for an opportunity to bond, to really bond with your son, then join me, Kevin Swanson, and hundreds of other fathers and sons from across the country next August. But be sure to register soon because we max out the camp every year and we're already filling up. Go to coloradofatherson.com today and choose one of the two weekends available before they are full. Lord willing, I will be there and it will be a great opportunity to meet you and your son. This is your chance to secure the lowest price for this event. So go to coloradofatherson.com and register today. And we are back on the Generations Radio Broadcast. Kevin Swanson with you as well. Adam McManus. Talking about the Gen Z generation, I wanted to touch on this article. Inflation and economic woes lead 54% of Gen Z Americans to live with their parents. This is uh, Brian Fung via the Epoch Times. Generation Z, the youngest generation of American adults, are struggling in an era of high inflation, expensive housing. At least 54% of adults ages 18 to 25 are opting to live with their parents out of economic necessity. That, according to a survey of 300 participants conducted by the Harris Poll. So let's talk about this, Adam, this living at home. Now, some of my children do live at home and they're in their 30s or sorry, 20s. They're living at home. But why? And here's the thing. If our children are living at home to save their money, I mean, they're working. They've got significant responsibilities going on in their lives. They're, they're working. They're saving money. We're moving inheritance off to them. And they intend to pay off a home owned in full by the time they get married. So be it. But if they're living at home to mooch, I've got a problem with that. At, at what, 25 years of age? You see the distinction there? So you're advising your own children to put away enough savings so that when they get married, they can pay off of a home in, in its entirety. Yeah, that would be the vision. And of course, got to wait for the bubbles to pop. <laughs> That's the other thing. You know, we, we, we would never advise anybody to buy in a bubble. Wait till the bubble pops. Okay. <laughs> Just a rule of thumb. Buy low, sell high tends to be a recipe that works. So, yeah, the, the idea that our children don't grow up, they're playing games, they're doing pornography, and they're not being responsible, and they're not saving their money, and they have no vision for life, that's a problem. That's the Gen Z right. generation. And as I see it, that is a significant problem. They also happen to be the most technologically savvy generation when it comes to social media. But they're not doing very well in aspects of economy. Only 28% of those surveyed between ages 18 and 25 said they regularly able to pay off their bills. What are their bills? What, what kind of bills do you have when you're 19 years old? 22 years old. 28% is all. They could pay off their bills. What is that? Your credit card bill? I'm guessing that's credit card. Yeah. I'm guessing that a lot of these people are spending way beyond their means. They're probably buying one too many lattes at Starbucks. That's probably the case. An alarmingly significant number, 78% of those surveyed admit that they have saved less compared to last year. So they're saving less and less. This is the most impoverished generation. This is the uh, most in-debt generation. This is the most uh, lazy generation. This is the generation with, oh, but here's the good news. They're very optimistic about their economic future. 
that's kind of pie in the sky, isn't it? Seems to me, yeah. Based on what? Uh, like only 20% say they're, or 33% worry about finding a house due to high prices, et cetera, et cetera. But they're very, very, you know, optimistic as to how everything's going to work out. Well, you know, I remember when I was about 24 years old, maybe I was 23 years old, I called my dad and talking about buying my first house. And I said, dad, you know, don't really want to go into debt. I'd love to pay off the house as soon as possible. What, what happens if I lose my job? And my dad said, you just get another job. I, I, we gave you the character to work. So, you, you know, if, if you financially implode, you can always, you know, apply yourself, apply the character that we gave you. Build it back up. Son, that's the thing that matters. I remember that advice my dad giving me, and I thought, well, that's, yeah, okay. But see, that's the piece that the Gen Zers didn't get. Now, my advice to my children has been don't be a Gen Zer. I don't care how old you are, just don't be a Gen Z. Don't be a millennial. Get off the train. Don't do what they do. Don't do Facebook. Don't be a flake. Go get a job when you're 15 years old, make $30,000 a year working part-time at Subway and save all your money and pay off a house by the time you're 25 years of age. And that's kind of thing that I bring out in how the world runs and your part in it for 14-year-olds. I wanted a very practical book for a 14-year-old so that they wouldn't make a bunch of mistakes in life. And so, you know, they get a mentor, they encourage their own parents to mentor them, to disciple them or somebody in the church some business person, some somebody who cares for them. We recommend that an older man mentor younger men, older women, younger women, as we find in Titus chapter 2. But uh, get a mentor. Get mentorship. Study the Bible with a mentor every day. I've got uh, two young men now going on three that are studying the Word of God with me three days a week. We do it at uh, 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time every day, largely through Skype. But, you know, um, there are a few young men in the country that reach out for mentorship. So, so get off the train. Don't be a flake. Do, do what everybody else isn't doing and stop doing what everybody else is doing. Attend every church meeting in your church, every prayer meeting. Pray that God will save you from this wretched, evil generation. That's the kind of stuff I think I would just give to the Gen Z generation in our churches, in our homes. Uh, we, we just, we, we, we need to, we need something radically different than what they have received, and I think we do get that from the Word of God. What does that mentorship look like, just out of curiosity? Can you elaborate on that? I think people would like to know. Yeah, my recommendation is a mentorship that extends for at least three years. In other words, not a mentorship that lasts for you know four months. And it doesn't have to be an everyday, it doesn't have to be in your home. It, it can be a, a connection on a weekly basis, but it's got to go and go, and go, to the point at which there is a focus upon character, there is a study of the Word of God together, there is a walking through. Right now, we're doing a series of questions put together by Pastor Phil Kaiser on, on, on leadership and, and the qualities for leadership. Hundreds of questions relating to the character of these young men in various areas of their lives. And we're going through each question one by one and discussing it. Very helpful in terms of how they communicate their own disciplinary methods, their self discipline in their life, et cetera, et cetera. So we go through all of these different aspects their relationships in the home, their relationships in the church, preparing them for leadership, 
preparing them for fatherhood, preparing them for being a husband. So uh, we, we also do theology and church history. We throw in other things. But my preference is that, you know, we can also have an opportunity to work together in our ministry. So sometimes these young men will be part of a ministry or a project. And so, you know, that this is something that plumbers can do, electricians can do, not just pastors. But I recommend mentorship as the only way in which we are going to work our way out of this terrible malaise we've found ourselves in. So, friends, let's uh, let's be sure that we're doing what the world is not doing. I'd recommend Kickstart as well, which is our program on how to find a mentor and what good mentorship looks like. So you might get involved with that program. It's called the Kickstart program. We mandate it for 11th graders as part of our Christian discipleship curriculum. Well, let's hit this letter before we're done, Adam. This is an interesting letter. Um that came in from our listening audience. By the way, if you got a letter for us, just simply write in to host at generations.org. You've got that, Adam. Just read that for us. I do. I'm a homeschooling mother of six children. The oldest two are teen girls. I see, especially with one of them, a strong tendency to look down on others that are not as cool, a feeling of superiority over anyone that doesn't dress nice enough or that doesn't have quite all the social graces or that isn't quite as capable. We are looking to address this with our children, and I'm looking for stories that would illustrate this lesson, either from the perspective of one that learns to view others with proper esteem, or what it is like for the ones that are looked down on. Would you have any resources or suggestions for us? Well, the obvious story that comes to my mind comes from the Gospels. There were these two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee stood and prayed with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Obviously, this is the core passage that deals with this, you know, I am better than others, rather than the publican who relied upon the grace of God, saw his own sin, saw that all of the sin in his life was way more of a problem than than anything he had ever done right, quote unquote. And uh, so he just fell down on his face, cried, "God, have mercy on me, a sinner." And I think that needs to be the mindset of any true believer. So we need to challenge our children, we need to challenge each other. If at any point this is no longer our mindset, if we're no longer the prodigal coming home, but we're rather the older brother looking down upon the prodigal for you know everything that he had done and the things that he had not done as in you know the things that the prodigal had fallen into he hadn't fallen into those things but he perceived himself to be better and uh and, and, and thereby associating himself with the pharisees rather than with the repentant publicans so I would say these biblical stories are, are are very helpful, very essential. One of the stories, though, that I would recommend, and we're about ready to republish a version of it, in fact, an excellent 
a version of it is George McDonald's book, Little Gibby. Great little story about a, a very despised little boy that turns out to be much more of that repentant type than uh, some of the self-righteous people that uh, stand around him. And we find that in, you know, throughout some of the 19th century literature. But there's this self-righteous, I'm better than you attitude. And another very key verse for this is Romans 12, verse 3. I say to every man that is among you, through the grace given unto me, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according to, as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So, you know, everything we have is from the gift, uh, from God, it's a gift of God. And, uh, and so we ought to see that we have received this gift, we've received these graces. And, and that if we have something, it's only that which God has already given to us. And, and not to think more highly of, of these gifts than we ought to think. You know, we sometimes like to compare ourselves to others and think that somehow we are more gifted than others, but we forget that there are, you know, 10,000 categories in which a person might be gifted and you've only been gifted in three of them. So, you know, that, that that's the other thing to think of. I would call her attention to the story of Jesus when he was willing to wash the feet of the disciples and how he was the servant of them, even though Jesus was inherently better than them because he was God in the flesh, but he took the role of servant. And I would encourage you to point your two daughters to the role of Jesus and to follow his example of being a servant to others and look for ways that you can help serve those around you. And therefore, in the serving of others, you will not think of yourself more highly than you should. The other thing that this uh, homeschooling mom brought up was the issue of what I would call the cool. And I describe this in my book on culture. Uh, this is the tattoo Jesus. What would the real Jesus do with popular culture? And uh, I've got this section on the cool. Uh, to understand modern culture, we must understand the concept of the cool. Sociologists define cool as a socially admired aesthetic, attitude, behavior, comportment, appearance, and style influenced by and a product of the zeitgeist, which is the spirit of the age. The cool person seeks a certain strategic social value with a peer context. Cool became the language of revolution in the 1960s, where the revolutionary would avoid outright rebellion to governing authorities, but hide defiance behind a wall of ironic detachment. Okay, so that was the description of the cool, at least provided by modern sociologists. And here's my commentary on it. If cool is a fundamental disposition and value that frames the attitude and behavior of the youth, the Christian wants to know how it competes with the fear of God and the honor of parents. And I think we'd also add the, the attitude of Jesus, which doesn't present himself to be above everybody else. Does cool still allow for the fear of God as the controlling predisposition? Recently, I received a church magazine sporting a front cover feature photo of a young man with a baseball cap cocked on his bowed head. The theme of the magazine was prayer, setting 1 Corinthians 11.4 aside, that is the head covering issue. I wondered if the magazine editor took into account the cultural milieu and the disposition implied by the comportment of the man in the picture. What would Augustine or Paul think of this uh, magazine cover? Of course, cool is not a biblical value, and as far as it competes with the fear of God, it is to be rejected. Does cool maintain Christian humility and the fear of God 
can cool adequately present human dignity as man created in the image of God, a little lower than the angel, or is cool rooted in human pride? So these are the sorts of things that we need to think about. And again, to emphasize the fear of God, the reverence of God, the centrality of God versus the centrality of me, the worship of God versus the worship of me that will come from all of those who see me in this, you know, wonderful attire is looking so much better than all of the riffraff out there. Wow. It seems to me that we need to be presenting the fear of God, the reverence of God and humility as primary virtues in the home. First and foremost, remember in 1989, there was a no fear line of clothing that came out that was put together by Mark Simo, Marty Motes and Brian Simo. The first line of No Fear T-shirts featured slogans or quotes that advocated the virtues of extreme sports. The themes were lack of fear of death, lack of laziness, contempt for social norms, and the law. So again, that sort of rebellion, the, the idea of not fearing God and you know being cool amongst our peers. And so that, that was the sort of attitude presented by this clothing line, the No Fear clothing line that came out in 1989. Now, you know, as that clothing line came out, I was watching people walking around the malls in the No Fear t-shirts. And I got to thinking, what if, what if Jesus came back just like right now and today was the final judgment and you show up in a t-shirt marked No Fear? Oh boy meaning there's no humility and certainly no fear of God in your eyes, in your mind. Okay, what's Jesus going to say? I don't think he'll be happy. What's with the T-shirt? What's with the T-shirt? Depart from me, you cursed, you workers of iniquity, into everlasting fire. Is, is that what he's going to say? So, again, you know, something of the fear of God, not so much just the dread fear of God. What I'm, what I'm talking about is, a deep, deep reverence for God that just needs to be underneath our our everything, our prayer life, our perceptions of one another, our perceptions of ourselves, and our perceptions of sin, the cross, Christ, the Son of God suffering on that cross, taking upon himself the wrath of God for my sin. That just needs to be swimming in the reverence in, in awe of the holiness of God, the, the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, and of course, the love of God as well at the cross. So for some reason, we've lacked the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom and knowledge in our churches, in our schools, in our homes. And it is my goal to bring that back, even to homeschool conferences. It's amazing that as we talk about education, it is so rare to hear speakers at homeschooling conferences, talk about the most important factor of all, and that is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge in the education of a child must be the fear of God. That is by far the most important issue that absolutely must make up every Christian conference, every Christian homeschool conference, every Christian schooling conference in the country. Otherwise, it has no right to be referred to as Christian. Well, friends, that wraps up this edition of the Generations broadcast. I hope this has been helpful for you. 
I would encourage you to my book, Upgrade the 10 Secrets to the Best Education for Your Child, to, to come back to those basic principles relating to education, relating to uh, raising our children the nurture and the fear of God. That little book called Upgrade the 10 Secrets available at generations.org. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.